1 Peter 5, 10 through 14. 1 Peter 5.10, May the God of all grace, which we covered this last week, but I want to read it again. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now this isn't really the end. It sounds like Peter's ending his epistle, but he's not. But he just gets so, I think he gets so emotional here, so excited by this talking about the grace of God, talking about His eternal glory, talking about how He wants to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. And then He says to Him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen! He's excited. But then, there's a little tag. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. He who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to get through this in the uh, amount of time we have left after my long rant. Bless this study. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, touch our hearts and minds. Thank you for your word. Bless this study, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we left off last week with verse 11. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So again, Peter kind of threw in a false conclusion there with his amen. But now he gives us his actual final remarks. Verse 12. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. You might or might not ask this question. Who the heck is Sylvanas? <laughs> Where's Waldo? <laughs> well, interestingly, Sylvanas is the Latin form of the Greek name Silas. And so it's believed that Sylvanas is one and the same as Paul's old buddy, old partner, Silas. He accompanied both Peter and Paul on separate missionary journeys. One of his first missions was to carry news of the Jerusalem conference to the believers at Antioch, Acts chapter 15, verse 22. He and Paul left Antioch together on a mission to Asia Minor, chapter 15 of Acts, verses 40 and 41. Later to Macedonia. In Philippi, he and Paul were imprisoned, remember? The Philippian jailer that they led to Christ, chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. Paul and Silas are there in jail in stocks, it would appear, and they start singing and praising God at midnight. Uh, God causes an earthquake. All the jail cells break open. All the prisoners escape. The jailer's about to kill himself because if your prisoners escape, you're going to be executed anyway. But then Paul and Silas stay in their cell. They don't leave. And the guy's blown away. And he's, what's going on here? What's, and they lead him to Christ. That was Paul and Silas. As I mentioned, one the jailer and his family of the Lord. Later in his uh, ministry, Silas teamed up with Peter, as we see here, on missions in Pontus and Cappadocia. And he also served as Peter's scribe, writing 1 Peter and perhaps other letters as well. So, by Silvanus, I have written to you briefly. So, confirming here, Peter confirms that Silvanus, or Silas, was his amuensis, that's a literary artistic assistant, 
in particular one who takes dictation or copies manuscripts. So Silas at this point had become Peter's amuensis. That's a cool word, amanuensis. Quite a word. And he calls him our faithful brother as I consider him. And of course, Peter's commendation carries a lot of weight. And I would say there could be no greater commendation than to be considered a faithful brother or sister in Christ. What do you think? Our faithful brother as I consider him. To be considered a faithful brother or sister in Christ to God and to his church, the body of Christ. And we might ask ourselves, I wonder, is that how other people view me? Do they view me as a faithful brother or sister in Christ? That would be something to be desired. Almost above all other things. If you could say one thing about John of Olio, would you call him a faithful brother in Christ? I would. I would. And there are many others here. But what a great commendation. Others might say, well, I'd like to be called anointed. <laughs> I'd like to be called charismatic. Right? I'd like to be called good-looking. <laughs> wow, what a good-looking Christian they, he is. Yeah, or she is. You know, hallelujahotties.com. Uh, no. Boy, if you could be called something, wouldn't it be great to be called a faithful brother or sister in Christ? We should all strive for that. We really should. And so what? As he, uh, he's commending Silas. says, I've written, written to you briefly, through Silas, my scribe, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. This is the true grace of God. Peter is giving personal testimony of his own experience and knowledge of God's grace. He was the one who denied Christ three times before the cock crowed. You could argue the case that Peter's denial was every bit as bad as Judas, right? And yet, because Peter was humble and broken and repentant, he experienced the grace of God perhaps to a degree that few men or women have in the history of the world. Restored. Arguably within the early church, the chief apostle, the leader. He's giving testimony of his own experience and knowledge of God's grace and he's exhorting, which means to encourage, to motivate, to energize the believers of Asia Minor to stand firm in the true grace of God. Now, it would seem that Peter is implying that if there is a true grace of God, then there's probably a false grace of God also. Would you agree? He wants us to stand firm in the true grace of God. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then, Paul writes? And Paul is talking about where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so some, apparently some in the early church there, we're arguing that, well, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that means the more I sin, the more I get to experience God's grace, right? I guess you could call that Calvinism. <laughs> Once saved, always saved. You know, you can't do anything to earn it, and you can't do anything to lose it. Therefore, you can do whatever you want, and you're still saved. That's kind of Calvinism in a nutshell, if you will. Eternal security. 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, gee, if I stop sinning, I'm not going to experience as much of God's grace. So I'm going to keep sinning. Certainly not, Paul writes. How shall we who died to sin? I wonder how many people who identify as Christians. Isn't that interesting? We live in a day and age where everybody's identifying as something. And you can basically now in today's world identify as whomever or whatever you want. If you're, you know, a white male, you could identify as a, you know, um, an African woman if you wanted. Uh, there seem to be no barriers anymore. You could identify a, as a poodle. And who is anyone else to say you're not a poodle? I mean, on the rational, logical level, it is insanity. But as you have heard me say before, our dear beloved Chuck Missler passed away a couple weeks ago, by the way. Did everybody know that? So uh, God bless him. He's now with the Lord, with his wife, Nancy, with his son. I believe his name was Chris, who preceded him also in death. All of cancer, by the way. But we love Chuck Missler, and we're very happy that he's now in paradise. But I remember um, it had to be at least, it's probably longer now. Time flies when you're having fun, you know. Ten years ago or more, maybe 20, that Chuck Missler said, uh, we are now officially living in the age of deception. And then I took it up a notch not too long ago. I said, now we're living in the age of insanity. And I believe it to be true. I mean, there are ample examples of it every day, of the insane attitudes, beliefs, actions of people all over our nation and around the world. The, recent, uh, the most recent school shooting there in Santa Fe, Texas. Mental illness. Demonic influence is rampant in our world today. But I wonder how many people who identify as Christians, and again, in today's vernacular, that takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? You see, we had a, a previous president who, for all intents and purposes, appeared to be Muslim, but identified as a Christian. You see what I'm saying? So I wonder how many people today who identify as Christians really understand what Paul is saying here. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How many people really understand when they make a profession of faith in Christ and they identify with Jesus that they're supposed to be dying to sin? Now, none of us are perfect. We all fall short. We stumble in many ways. So that's why we need to go every day to the Lord, confess our sins, ask for forgiveness, get our feet washed by the Savior. But what Paul is saying, we as believers need to render ourselves as though dead to sin. Sin should be the exception rather than the rule for a believer. Not a lifestyle. Not a lifestyle. That's what it means to be dead to sin, to turn from your sin, to repent. People struggle. Some people it's sexual issues. Others it's chemical issues. Various issues in life uh, that people struggle with. But the question is, are you struggling? Is it, are you fighting it? 
You know, and there are, praise God, in spite of all the publicity to the contrary, they just had a recent gathering for Christians who were formerly gay and lesbian. I don't know if you read about that. And these people were giving wonderful testimonies. And of course, they were slammed by the mainstream media. Some states are beginning to outlaw any kind of therapy to help someone come out of that lifestyle. There's a lot of stuff being done to encourage people to go into that lifestyle, even small children now in public schools. But these people came out and they said, we've been saved, we've been set free. Now, if you talk to different ones, uh, some of them at least will tell you they sometimes still struggle with the thoughts, with the desires, but they are reckoning themselves dead to sin in Christ. They're fighting it. That's why Paul said, I beat my body into submission. Why would Paul need to beat his body into submission? Wasn't Paul perfect? No, in fact, he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. Why would he need to beat his body into submission unless his body was trying to rebel against him? Right? But the difference, it's a difference between lifestyle and just the struggles that every human being faces. Those who just willingly choose to live a sinful lifestyle and yet would identify as a Christian, there's a problem there. This is false grace. False grace says you're forgiven, therefore you can do whatever you want. True grace says, yes, you are forgiven, but now you must die to sin. That's true grace. And true grace says, but when you do fall short, when you do stumble, when you do blow it, True grace says, 1 John 1, 9. I, you know, I pray this prayer every night before I go to bed. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a glorious promise. Because the devil wants to tell you, nope, you went too far this time, you're done. God is not going to forgive you anymore. Have you ever had those thoughts? They come from the devil, the father of all lies. Okay, buddy, this is about the hundredth time you've prayed for forgiveness for that one. You know, there is a limit on God's forgiveness. Guess what? No, there's not. There is no limit. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. Thank you, Jesus, to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's true grace. False grace says you don't even need to do that. Once you're saved, it's a done deal, man. You can go to heaven and still live like the devil. No, that's not true. That's false grace. False grace says if God is a loving God, then he will accept us just as we are without any necessity of change, of repentance, or turning away from sin. That's false grace. It's being preached all over the place today. In many very popular ministries, by the way, John 8, 10 through 11. You know the story. The woman caught in adultery. Jesus deals with all these hypocritical Pharisees that walk up with their rocks and they dare Jesus to throw the first rock. Trying to call him out because he, they knew how loving and merciful and gracious and forgiving he was and they were trying to set him up. Hey, Lord, this woman was caught in adultery. The law says she should be stoned to death. What do you say? 
Are you going to go against the law? We hope you do. Or throw the first rock and prove that you're not so loving and gracious and merciful after all, are you? Well, we know he got rid of them. He got down, he drew, he wrote in the, in the dirt. Many commentators, Bible scholars believe he was writing down the various sins of these men. Hypocrite, liar. Maybe some of them were even adulterers. The only difference is, just like the FBI and the CIA and the DOJ, they don't investigate themselves. The Pharisees don't investigate themselves. Hello. Those are the modern-day Pharisees, my friends. They live across the U.S. in Washington, D.C. And there's my political commentary for today. <laughs> Other than mentioning a Muslim president who identifies as a Christian. I believe in speaking truth to power. Okay, so Jesus gets rid of the accusers. When Jesus had raised himself up off the ground and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman... Oh, Jesus, you can't call her woman. What is the matter with you, Lord? That is so degrading. You can't call her a woman. You need to say person. See, what we need is a politically correct social justice warrior Bible. I bet there's already one out there. What do you want to bet? Woman, person. We need a genderless Bible, you know. <laughs> we do all know that I'm being sarcastic, right? Huh? Help me out, Trump. Okay. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. I'm sure she was pretty blown away at that point. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. This is where the, the spiritually correct, politically correct version ends. Neither do I condemn you. So say hi to your boyfriend for me. No. What does it say next? Go and sin no more. That's true grace. See, without grace, she would have been stoned to death because the law did require that. True grace... God's unmerited favor says, you know what? I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm going to give you forgiveness. I'm going to give you eternal life. True grace. But there is a requirement involved. Again, I know you won't be able to do it all the time perfectly, but the expectation is that you'll make every effort aided by the power of my Holy Spirit to not do this anymore. Go and sin no more. That's true grace. False grace says, just says, hey, it's all cool. It's good. Where are your accusers? Oh, they're all gone, Lord. Okay, neither do I condemn you. Tell Stormy Daniels I said hi. <laughs> if you don't know who she is, don't look it up. Don't bother. <laughs> the true grace of God is his unmerited favor towards us imparted to all who will receive the forgiveness of sin and the precious gift of eternal life through his one and only son Jesus Yeshua HaMashiach that is the true grace of God 
unmerited favor imparted to all who will receive the forgiveness of sin and the precious gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's true grace. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? For the wages of sin is death. Yes, you do deserve to be stoned to death. But the gift of God, it's a gift because you can't ever earn it. You'd have to be perfect. The only human being that's ever walked this planet in perfection is Jesus Christ. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, now, the grace, the true grace in which you believers that Peter's writing to, and it would include us, in which you stand. How do we stand as believers? No one can stand on his or her own merit. I got this covered, God. If I need you, I'll call you. No, 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 no. Don't live your life like that. No one can stand or on his or her own merit. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. How many here today are included in the word all? Hello. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, earlier Peter talked about God allowing us to be participants to partake in his glory. Why? Because we have none. But he graciously, again, graciously allows us to partake of his glory and ultimately, we will be glorified. We'll see that here in just a moment. We stand in grace, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The number one goal, I believe, in this life, as believers, first you've got to become a believer. Life doesn't begin until you're born again. Really. You have biological function. You have mental capacity and so forth, but life does not really begin at 30. Remember that old expression? Life begins at 30. Gosh, in today's world, it's over at 30, I think. Life begins when you're born again. And once you're born again, the number one goal in this life should be, I believe, to stand. Take heed lest you fall. Ephesians 6.13 Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, helmet of salvation, you know, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, all that, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And these are not capital E or capital D. So this is not a one-time event, the evil day. It just means there are going to be evil days. Throughout our lives, we will encounter those days where sinister forces are at work. God wants us to be able to stand, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, take a nap. Having done all, take a break. Go on vacation. Having done all to what? Stand. As opposed to sitting, falling, kneeling, laying down. Standing for Christ should be our number one goal. I would propose to you that that's the only way to maintain a strong, powerful witness for Christ in this world is to stand. Oh, yeah, but man, it's cool. I'm laying down for Jesus. I'm doing the backstroke for Jesus in Hawaii. <laughs> Don't tempt me. Is that what you're thinking, right? <laughs> Don't tempt me. 
Okay, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We are hard-pressed on every side. Can anybody relate to that here today? This is Paul writing. I mean, he takes it to a whole new level. We might identify with what he's saying, but I guarantee you we haven't experienced it like he did. Hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed. You ever been perplexed? What is going on? But not in despair. Wait a minute, can you say that? We should not be in despair with Christ. We can be perplexed. We should never find ourselves in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. God will never leave us or forsake us. People may persecute us, but God's always there with us. And as I've told you many times, when they're persecuting you, they're really persecuting Jesus. Remember how Paul was persecuting Christians when he was still called Saul? And he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't really persecuted. Saul didn't even know Jesus. He just hated Christians, wanted to arrest them, wanted to kill them. But you know what? Jesus said, when you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So when we're being persecuted, Jesus is right there with us. It's just as personal to him as it is to us. And finally, struck down, but not destroyed. Because no one can destroy us but God, and God will not destroy his own. Right? Jesus says, don't fear the one who can destroy your body. Fear the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. Struck down but not destroyed. The grace, the true grace in which you stand. At the end of the day, if we don't stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word, let me tell you something here, folks. This is a nugget. This is a gem. You can take it to the bank. I wish we could emblaze it into the heart and mind of every human being. At the end of the day, if we don't stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word, nothing else really matters. Do you get it? I don't care if you're the wealthiest person in the world. I don't care if you're the pastor of a 30,000 member, 50,000 member megachurch. I don't care if you're the president of the United States or the uh, whatever Putin's title is, I don't other than dictator, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You could be the new princess, Meghan Markle, marry Prince Harry, marry Harry, <laughs> which she did yesterday. But you know what? If Meghan, and I don't know where she stands with God, I don't know where Harry stands with God. The royals tend to be treated as though they were God's. At the end of the day, if we, if anyone, doesn't stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word, nothing else really matters. You could have a wonderful family, love your wife, your husband, your kids, your grandkids. That's, that's great. But I tell you what, it wouldn't be so great if you all wind up in hell together. Oh, my goodness. Did you hear what he just said? 
That is so hurtful. That is so hateful. That he would even suggest that me and my family are going to hell. Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I'm telling you what God says. If you don't stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word, when this life is over, you will have nothing. But t torture, torment, heartache for all eternity. If I know that and I don't tell you, that would be hateful. That would be evil. If I know that I know that I know that God sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross for our sins, that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life, and if I know that I know that I know, if you reject Him, you will spend eternity in hell, but I'm so afraid of offending you that I won't tell you, that's evil. That's hateful. I love you, and so I'll tell you the truth. And again, I'm not trying to evangelize you all here today. I'm trying to help you solidify your faith, what it really means to understand it so you can articulate it to other people. Because if you can't, how are you going to win anyone to Christ? It's sad. I mean, it's just over. I guess people get nervous sometimes. I have to understand that. We were doing some teacher interviews here the last couple weeks for the school for some positions that we have open. We still have a couple, by the way, if we have anybody out there with a bachelor's degree. You don't have to have a teaching certificate, but you do have to have a bachelor's degree. I think we need a second grade and a fifth grade. Pray for that if you're interested. Talk to us. But I was trying to get these uh, potential, these candidates for teaching positions to articulate their personal faith. And they were, they were struggling with it, although I knew they were believers. I've experienced it many times with baptism. Maybe people don't understand the question. I don't know. But I find that so many believers struggle with being able to articulate what they believe. We have to be able to articulate it if, we, if we're going to share it with others and win them to Christ. Stuff like, well, you know, Gosh, God just made my life so much better. I mean, that's, that's fine. But that's very generic. It's kind of like Rick Warren saying, just invite Jesus into your heart. Well, that's part of it. But there's more to it. What is the whole message? Confess your sins, right? Re repent. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. There's more to it than just ask Jesus into your heart. Oh, just Jesus just made everything wonderful. First of all, that's not entirely true. Do Christians still have problems? See, the only thing that we really have to offer people that is rock solid, reliable, trustworthy, and truthful is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the price. On the third day, he rose from the dead. Right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back again for us. And if you put your faith in Him and confess your sins, He will forgive you, He will wash you clean, and He will give you the precious gift of eternal life. Amen. Not He healed my dog from arthritis. That's great. I've prayed for my pets before. 
But my dog didn't die for me on the cross. Jan Crouch once prayed for a chicken. And apparently the chicken got healed. And f funny enough, she kind of looked like a chicken. Oh, did, did you hear that? What is the matter with this guy? Well, you can tell me I look like a chicken. I don't really care. So if that, that helps. But I've given you permission to do that. Just don't try anything else. I don't know, man. We may never finish 1 Peter 5 in my lifetime. How are we doing here? Let's see. Stand. Hard-pressed. Again, 1 Peter 5.10, May the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, settle. That's what it means. To establish your life, God wants to set you on a firm foundation and help you to stand. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Babylon was a code name for Rome. Peter's writing to the churches in Asia Minor from Rome where he would be ultimately crucified upside down. He speaks of the elect together with you, you believers in Asia Minor. In other words, you fellow believers, you brothers and sisters in Christ, she who is in Babylon, the church in Babylon, Elect together with you, so your brothers and sisters in Christ here in Rome greet you. Hey, Peter, send our love to the brethren and the sistren in Asia Minor. That's what he's saying. The, the Christians here love you. We're all in this together. And so does Mark, my son. So even as, as Paul had adopted Timothy as his son in the faith, remember that? Paul referred to Timothy as his son in the faith. Not a biological son, but a spiritual son. Paul was a mentor and a teacher to Timothy. So Peter done the same thing with John Mark. That's his full name. Not Mark, John Mark. And it's believed that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel as transcribed by Mark. So even as Silas had become a scribe for Peter, Mark had also done that, particularly with the gospel of Mark. Now we know that Mark had previously been associated with Paul and Barnabas. But even before that, this is pretty interesting, Mark 14, 51. This is um, when they're taking Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Many Bible scholars, theologians, and commentators believe this young man to be Mark. Not a particularly auspicious introduction. But nonetheless, that's what happened. So it's the middle of the night, you know, and they arrested Jesus. Mark's following at a distance. He's got his pajamas on. They try to seize him, rip the pajamas off of him, and he runs away naked. Acts 12, 11 and 12. When Peter had come to himself, Peter's been in jail. The angel comes and springs him. Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod. And from all the expectation of the Jewish people, expecting that Peter would be executed, sorry guys, it's going to be 30 more years at least. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So we know that uh, one of the inner circle, the early followers of Christ, was Mark's mother, Mary, one of the several Marys, and 
Peter had an early association with his family. Acts 12.25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they took, also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And so we know early on, Mark had been associated with Barnabas and Saul in mission work. But then in Acts 15.37, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So what happened was that when Mark, this young man Mark, perhaps just a teenager, barely out of his teens, accompanied Paul and Barnabas, he flaked out. He bailed out. He went home. And Barnabas had forgiven him, wanted to continue to work with him. Paul did not. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas, Silvanus, and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So it would appear that Mark's early days in ministry were marked by controversy. A little nakedness there, not of his own doing. And then uh, a little falling out with, with Paul. Later getting connected up with Peter. Ultimately, he became closely associated with Peter. He was with him there in Rome when Peter wrote this epistle. Actually wrote one of the four Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. So he rose from inauspicious beginnings to be a very significant player, if you will, participant in the New Testament church at the leadership level. And by the way, there's a good point to be made here that we could all learn from. He did not allow his early failures to keep him down. We would all do well to follow Mark's example. You've probably heard me say this before, but Abraham Lincoln lost six elections before he became president. Did you know that? The big difference between people who succeed in life and those who don't, the ones who succeed learn how to fail and fail and fail until finally they succeed. The ones who don't fail and give up. There's nothing wrong with failure. Nothing should be embarrassing about failure. We learn and we grow through failure. Mark did not give up, and he wound up being one of the four writers of the Gospels. Fourteen, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And this is the final amen. So the kiss of love, or as Paul called it, uh, the holy kiss, this was and is a common practice in many parts of the world. We know like the French, Italians do it. They still do it in Israel today. One cheek and then the other, mwah, mwah, you know. But especially meaningful for believers because for others it's just a social thing, you know. It doesn't really signify any necessarily any real depth of relationship. But for the believer, it's especially meaningful because believers are required to agape one another, to love each other unconditionally. It's a symbol of love, friendship, fellowship, forgiveness, and acceptance. And having said that, most Americans are not really comfortable with this kiss of love stuff. And it's definitely not appropriate for the guys to be giving the girls a kiss of love or vice versa. In the early church, it was generally believed it was practiced men with men and women with women. And so we men were way too macho for that, right? <laughs> Charles Ryrie says the kiss of love or the holy kiss, Paul's term in Romans 16, 16, was an expression of Christian love and was apparently restricted to one's own gender. The closest we Americans get to this practice is the sideways hug. Right? There are occasional exceptions. 
And from time to time, particularly if I'm having fun with Chris Rivera, I'll give him a little kiss <laughs> on the head or the cheek. You like it and you know it. He's over there shaking his head. And some of the older women that I look li at like mothers. They're like my surrogate mothers. My mother passed away many years ago, but I have mothers in the face, and I love them. Peace to you all. The Jews greet one another and also say goodbye with the word shalom. It's like aloha in Hawaii. It can mean hello. It can mean goodbye. Shalom, Hebrew for peace. The word peace, by the way, appears 95 times in 88 verses of the New Testament. It's a big subject. Peace to you all. This is so important. We don't want to jump over this too quickly. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Again, big rallying cry of the 60s, peace, right? It's made a kind of a comeback. But again, without Christ, it is superficial and essentially meaningless. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Apart from Christ, there can be no true lasting peace for individuals or for humanity at large. Luke 2.14 in the New American Standard Bible. Glory to God. This is the birth of Christ. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. NIV, on whom his favor rests. NRSV, among those whom he favors. Is God pleased with all men? No, he's not. Sorry. I know there's this universalist belief system out there that if God is really good, if God is really love, if he even really exists, then, you know, he loves everybody. Now, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves everybody to the point that he doesn't want to see us go to hell. He sent his son to die on the cross, but his favor does not rest on those who do not embrace him and receive him. He's only pleased with those who humble themselves before him, confessing and repenting of their sin. His favor only rests on those who choose to take up their cross and follow him. Understand? Some people think they can just give kudos to the man up there, the man in the sky, the big kahuna. Kudos to you, whoever you are, wherever you are, and then his favor is going to rest on them. It does not work that way. And it certainly does not rest on those who blaspheme him, mock him, curse him, or mock and curse his people. You think God's favor rests on those who do that? Absolutely not. Yeah, but they're so wealthy. They're so successful. Oh, my goodness. The last time I checked, Satan's the prince of this world. Satan can bless your life, too. But as I've said before, his blessings come with major strings attached. And it ultimately leads to destruction. James 4.8. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Well, what do you mean? He's bigger than me. Let him make the first move. Guess what? He already did. He sent his son into this world 2,000 years ago to die on the cross for you. He already made the first move. It's your move. Boy, that's a good thing. to Use that on people. God already made the first move. He reached out to you. It's your turn. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded. Do you want to serve God or serve the world? Serve God or serve the devil. You're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan. Luke 19, 42, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, 
the things that make for your peace. He's speaking to the, over Israel who rejected him. If you'd only known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, me, receiving me as your Savior, but now they're hidden from your eyes. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Not the shallow, superficial peace that this world offers, the temporary peace that this world offers, the permanent, everlasting peace that rests within the heart of a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If we have the peace of God that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, no anxiety necessary, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Man, there's a lot in this book of 1 Peter. There's a lot in these final words confirmed by many other scriptures that we've read today. Then finally, amen. This is Peter's final amen and the final end of Peter's first epistle. Let's stand. Just a reminder, we still have a lot of Calvary Chapel magazines in the back. I'd appreciate it if you pick one up. Check it out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for just the incredible depth and riches of your word, Lord, of the teachings of Christ, of the apostles, this first epistle of Peter, just the richness, the depth, the strength that we can derive from your word if we will but hear it and then take it to heart, apply it in our lives, really not just hear it, but do it. Help us to do that. We ask in Jesus' name and we pray for those today who might need prayer, whether it would be for health issues, other emotional issues, whatever's going on in our lives today. There might even be someone here who needs to be saved, someone who needs to come today and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. If that's the case, we ask you to draw them by your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there are those who need to rededicate their lives, that they would come. And Lord, whatever the needs are, we know that you can meet those needs and all you're waiting for is for us to ask. So we ask you to bless the ministry time as we prepare to dismiss Ask that you'd have your hand upon us as we leave this place. May your spirit be with us and upon us and in us. That you guide and direct us. Make straight our paths. Bless the food for those who stay to eat, the burritos, the donuts. Bless the fellowship. We thank you for our family, for our little section, our little corner of the body of Christ. We are grateful. We are thankful. We praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.